All right, today's reading is from Exodus 12, um, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. The first month are of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Um, well, good morning. Let's start this over from the top. Uh, not the first song, but just from the moment I walked up here. Uh, before we jump into the Word, we're going to look at Exodus 11 and 12 today. And uh, Jay read a part of chapter 12 for us. But before we get into that, I want to just remind the college students that our uh, community group, the community group that my family is a part of, is hosting a free lunch for college students stay at the Haste House. And so uh, our address is in the bulletin, and you are welcome to join us. We have chilies and soups and cornbreads and all sorts of good stuff. So uh, we'd be glad to have you join us for lunch. Uh, we're going to do that 1 o'clock. Again, the address is in the bulletin, but if you have any questions, you can catch me or my wife after the service, and our uh, community group will be there. They've all pitched in and prepared a great meal, and so we look forward to hopefully hanging out with some of you guys this afternoon. But we are going to look at Exodus 11 and 12, and I want to ask the Lord to bless our time together. So would you pray with me before we begin? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have written these things down. You have seen fit to have them written down uh, for our instruction that we might learn uh, even today about things long ago that impact how we live our lives today. And so we pray now that you would Unite our minds and focus our hearts and help us to receive from you uh, what you would have for us this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a church historian named Claire Davis who says the Christian life is a com combination of amnesia and deja vu. Right? We're constantly forgetting the things we know and then we're kind of re-remembering the things we've forgotten. Uh, he said... I. I find myself often thinking, I know I've forgotten this before, and yet here I am learning it again. Uh, it's the truth, right? I mean, we are a forgetful people, and we can think about all the times in Scripture that we're called to remember as evidence that we sometimes forget. Uh, 
And I think that idea helps us make a little bit of sense of what happens here in chapter 11 and 12 of the book of Exodus. Because we've been walking through this series. We've been slowly making our way to this moment where God is going to intervene into the Israelite situation. He's going to help them escape from Egypt. And chapter 10 ended with the ninth plague, utter darkness, and Moses kind of storming out from Pharaoh's presence. And both of them saying, we're never going to see each other again. And so there's this kind of decisive conclusion there. We think the next chapter, we're going to turn the page and they're getting out, right? And instead, you turn to chapter 11 and into chapter 12, and you get all of these instructions for how to keep a religious festival. And it's a bit of an odd pause in the narrative. But it's as if God is wanting us to see that this moment is so central to the identity of his people. It's going to be so seminal to their future as a nation that he gives them instructions for how to remember it before it even happens. Before they could have even forgotten it, he is teaching them how to remember it and how to commemorate it down through the centuries. And so chapter 11 uh, kind of unpacks that conversation between Moses and Pharaoh a little bit more. And we hear a little bit more of that interaction. And then chapter 12 gives us these specific instructions for how to keep what the Jews called the Passover. And so we're going to look at the idea of the Passover today uh, thematically. And I want to just focus in on three key truths. So if you're, if you're taking notes, this would be the, the outline for the day. The Passover is three things for us. Uh, it was an act of judgment. The Passover was an act of judgment. Secondly, it was an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy. And then lastly, we'll look at how it was an act of preparation. It was an act of preparation. So the Passover was, first of all, an act of judgment. Right? It was ultimately God, God's decisive judgment on the Egyptians. And we see that in a few different ways in the passage. One real clear way is this whole business at the beginning of chapter 11. We didn't read this part, but it's what we call the plundering of the Egyptians. Uh, if you look down in chapter 11, God gives instructions to Moses and he says, you're going to tell the people to go to the Egyptians and ask them for gold and silver stuff and, you know, jewelry, things like that. And then they're going to give it to you. They're going to actually just hand this stuff over, right? And it's a bit of an odd scene because typically for an ancient army to plunder another nation, they would have to first defeat them in battle. And the Israelites just ask and they receive. It's a bit of an odd moment. Now, this stuff they collect here is going to show up later in the narrative because in Exodus 32, they're going to find themselves in the wilderness, but they're going to have these piles of gold and they're going to think maybe we should burn this into a calf, something we could worship. We'll talk about that in a few months when we get there. Uh, later, it's going to be put to a better use when they start constructing the tabernacle. And some of this very gold that they take from Egypt is going to become uh, the structure uh, the structural elements of the tabernacle where God's presence dwells among his people. So this is not an insignificant detail, but it's a bit odd. I mean, what, what's going on here? What is God doing here? Well, on the one hand, he's giving them favor to fulfill the promise he made. This is actually part of the plan all along. It's, it's a detail we probably are apt to skip over back in chapter 3. But the very first time God appears to Moses, he says, here's what's going to happen. I've raised you up. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him to let my people go. He's going to say no over and over and over. I'm going to strike judgment upon them. And then eventually you're going to get to leave and you're going to plunder the Egyptians. 
So this is part of God fulfilling his promise to his people in that way. But more significantly, he is settling their accounts in this place. I mean, this is God's way of making sure that his people get repaid, in a sense, for the years and years of oppression and enslavement they have suffered. It is a way of making things right between Israel and Egypt. And so God gives them favor in the side of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are weakened as a result. I mean, their national wealth is depleted by their generosity, in a sense, as they give over to the Israelites. And that's just because their national wealth has increased on the backs of these slaves. But we, we get a little picture here of what God thinks about oppression in this plundering of the Egyptians. So, so that's one aspect of judgment we see here. A second aspect is God's decisive action against the Egyptian gods. Right? We heard this in the part that Jay read, verse 12 of chapter 12. Uh, each plague has targeted an Egyptian deity. We've, we've looked at that. We've talked about how these different things that God brings about kind of correspond with these different Egyptian gods. In verse 12 of chapter 12, there's this note of finality. God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. So here it is, once and for all, God is going to show his supremacy over these Egyptian gods. And in doing so, he's going to make a distinction, as he has in some of these other plagues, between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Because the people of Egypt are going to awake in the middle of the night to a great cry, the death of the firstborn in every household in Egypt. But of the people of Israel, he says, not a dog shall growl at them. And that's a, maybe an odd metaphor to us, but it would have probably made a bit more sense to these people that have been in, in Egypt and have watched these Egyptians worship uh, this, this god Anubis that was pic- pictured as a canine. You've probably seen that. If you know much of anything about ancient Egypt, you know tombs, you know mummies, you know pyramids, right? They were pretty fascinated with death in the afterlife. So here is God showing clearly, I am the god of life and death. And, and your god Anubis, this, this dog god that... They're, they're picturing in all these funerals and they're bowing down to in their ceremonies. He's going to be silenced on this night. So again, God is executing judgment on the Egyptians, uh, on their gods, and then, of course, on the Egyptians themselves. And so we think about that promise that on this night there is going to be the, the death of their firstborn. This is a hard thing to read about. And when we read these kinds of things in Scripture, we're struck by the humanity of it. I mean, these are people. They woke up in the middle of the night to a great distress, a great tragedy. And it's it's comprehensive. It's all across the land. And it it seems harsh. And so we have to remind ourselves of the, the full scope of the context here, right? God is not maliciously targeting a people here. He is bringing justice to bear on their sins, and so you just think about some of the sins that have led us to this moment. Think about the years of slavery and oppression that the Israelite people have suffered. And we talked about that several weeks ago. It's been in the background a little bit as we've been focusing on the plagues, but they've still been slaves even as the plagues continued, right? So we're talking about 400 years in this land. Uh, some 80 years ago when Moses was born, 
Pharaoh had this plan to, to murder the firstborn sons of all the Israelites, right? God said in that moment, Israel, these people are my firstborn. Pharaoh went after them, and now God is repaying him for his evil deeds, right? So his, his judgment is at random. It's not capricious. There's, it's a consequence for what these people have done. And I say these people because it's not just Pharaoh, I mean, this is a nation, this is a kingdom built on the backs of slaves. And, and the Egyptian people have stood by and they've let it happen. And they've participated in their own way. And so God is bringing judgment upon them for their sins. And it's a just judgment. The other piece of it is you've got a nation that has centuries of idolatry. Right, all, of these, all of this worship of foreign gods, that wasn't just ignorance. That was what the Bible calls idolatry. You have to think about things like this in the Old Testament. Uh, even in our world today, we have to think about things like this in the context of Romans 1. See, Romans 1 says that what can be known about God has been made plain in this world by just a factor of living in God's world. In other words... God the creator has put his fingerprints all over his creation. He has written his law on our hearts, Romans 2 tells us. And so when we or they or anyone else worship a false god, that worship, that act of worship, is it's not moving from a state of neutrality to worshiping that god. It's turning from what we see about the one true God in creation and turning towards something that is false. Any form of idolatry is a form, is fundamentally a form of rejecting God Himself. That's what Romans 1 and 2 teach us. Romans 1 says, they are without excuse, right? Because what can be known about God is plain to them, and yet they've suppressed the truth with unrighteousness. In other words, what, what is clear about God is right in front of them, and they don't want to see it. The creation is shouting out the glory of God, and they don't want to hear it. So they have turned their backs. We have turned our backs and worshipped another. That's what idolatry always is. So it's not, it's not just ignorance. It's, it's idolatry. It's, it's turning away from the true God and turning to these false gods. So that's some of what's going on, I think, in this scene. When, when God is enacting judgment on the people of Egypt, he is bringing justice to bear on their actions. Right? We have to understand it like that. This is not just a capricious God just zapping some people because he was mad and, and he wanted to do something cool for his people. Now He was bringing natural consequences to bear on their choices. Centuries and centuries of choices. And it's a reminder to us that Scripture promises of a greater judgment to come. I mean, this is an uncomfortable picture to consider, uh, but this is, uh, this is nothing compared to what Scripture says awaits us on what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew 25, where he says, you know, the Son of Man will return, he will sit on his throne, and all the peoples of the world will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. Those whom he knows, those whom he has set... On, on whom he has set his love, those who have embraced him by faith will go on his right, and those who have rejected him 
will go to his left. And those on his right will be welcomed in to the place he says, I've been preparing for my people since before the foundation of the world. What an amazing picture. But those on his left, he says, will go to a place of eternal torment. They will suffer the eternal consequences of having turned away from the living God and pursued false deities. So when we read the Passover, we have to be reminded this is an act of judgment. It is a reminder of a day when the Lord will separate his people from the peoples of this earth. And there will be a clear and dividing line between those who have trusted in Christ and those who have continued to suppress the truth. So the Passover is an act of judgment, but it's also an act of mercy. It is absolutely an act of mercy. And we see that, of course, when we think about the Israelites and we think about this moment that God is memorializing in the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And so this moment is so central that God wants them to not just recall it in future generations. He wants them to reenact it. Right? He wants them to act it out. So you're going to take a lamb, you're going to kill it, you're going to put its blood on the doorpost. That's what they're going to do in Egypt to get out of Egypt. That's what's going to cause the, the angel of the Lord or the destroyer, as the text puts it, to pass over their homes. But God says, this isn't just an event that I want to, to have happened in my world and then people forget about it. No, we want to do this year after year after year to remind us of God's mercy. And so he gives all these instructions of how this is to happen. And, and just two main elements are the lamb and the bread. We'll focus on those just briefly to, to get this picture of mercy. If you think about that lamb dying, it's, it's a bit abstract. And, and in our modern world, I, I think it's hard to connect to this because most of us have not come from religious backgrounds where we do animal sacrifices and things like this. But this is a very normal situation in the ancient world. But imagine just for a second, I think this is something we can all relate to. Kind of put yourself in the story for a moment and imagine you're one of those firstborn children in Israel. Right? Imagine you've grown up in a home where, you know how kids are, they're always asking about their family. You know, is so-and-so my cousin? Are they my uncle? Did daddy have any other brothers? Things like that. Imagine you've grown up in a home where you have no uncles. Why don't I have any uncles, Dad? Well, my mom and dad had several kids, but they were cast in the Nile about 80 years ago because the Pharaoh at the time wanted to kill all the firstborn boys, right? Remember that from Exodus chapter 1? Then you've heard these kind of faint promises of deliverance. You see mom and dad praying and hoping in a day when they'll get out of this place. You start to see these plagues. There are frogs everywhere and flies all about and darkness in the land. You're trying to make sense of it. And then you hear this business about the firstborn dying. You're the firstborn. You know you're the oldest. You know what that means. And you think, what's going to happen to me? Where's this going to go? And all of a sudden, mom, dad, probably dad, comes to you and says, we're going to pick out a lamb. And we're going to slaughter the lamb. And then you watch that lamb die. And you think to yourself, that could have been me. And suddenly that death takes on a really personal significance when you imagine yourself in that moment. And I think that's 
some of what God is getting at and wanting to memorialize this. He's wanting us year after year. He's wanting his people, namely Israel in the Old Testament, year after year to remember that could have been me. But God supplied a substitute. And so they're to sacrifice the lamb as a, memory, as a memorial to the mercy of God. And they're to eat this bread that is unleavened. Uh, the, the fact that it's unleavened, it just means that they had to leave so quickly that uh, there was no time for the dough to rise. That's what unleavened bread is. Uh, it's very flat. It tastes like cardboard. Uh, it's not very good at all. Uh, but they're going to eat it for seven days, God tells them. And that's going to be a reminder to them that when they left Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry. It's going to remind them that it was dire circumstances. And it's going to remind them that in God's mercy, he visited his people. And it was the beginning of freedom. It was the beginning of deliverance. Because again, remember, even as the plagues have been happening, and we think the plagues probably took about six months, right? Even as they've been happening, they, they're still enslaved. I mean, they're still waking up every morning in captivity. They're still going to work for Pharaoh, making bricks, building his cities, even as these things are happening. But finally, in these moments, things start to change. And God wants them to remember what that felt like. He wants them to remember that moment. Now, you might think, surely no one would ever forget this, right? I mean, how could a people forget such a monumental thing? But again, think about ourselves. We're forgetful people, aren't we? I mean, you, you think about those of you that have been walking with the Lord for some time, that have been a Christian and following after Jesus for some time. Do you remember what it felt like when you first tasted forgiveness? When you first experienced freedom? When you first realized, I can be made whole. I can be made new. The first time you heard God loves you, and you actually believed it. It's hard to hold that memory in your mind day after day after day. I, I love when I have opportunities to be around new believers, kind of younger Christians. They have this sort of zeal and excitement about them that, quite frankly, some of us lose over the years, right? It, but it's just easy to forget what God has done in our lives. That's why over and over and over in the New Testament, we're told to remember. And that's why over and over and over, God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, they practice this ritual, right? So we're not even going to get to the Exodus today. We've got two whole chapters of just, this is how to remember what I'm about to do. And then year after year, they would sacrifice the lamb. Year after year, they would eat the unleavened bread. And it was preparing them for a day when those images would be fulfilled by a greater reality and a greater rescue. And that's the third truth we want to think about. The Passover was an act of judgment. It was an act of mercy. It was also an act of preparation. It was ultimately preparing the way for Jesus. If you think about these two themes, judgment and mercy, they're like two uh, twin threads running through the Old Testament. So many of the stories in the Old Testament boil down to the judgment of God or the mercy of God in action. If you trace those threads out, they come to meet at the cross of Christ. So even the Passover is an act of preparation. Even the blood on the doorpost 
is, is meant to prepare us for a greater blood, a blood that speaks a better word, the author of Hebrews says. And, and it reminds us that, that blood is central to our hope in Christ. It's kind of weird to talk about. It makes some of us a little squeamish to think about. But if you read your New Testament, you're going to find the word blood over and over and over, and you're going to find it in these intense expressions of the Christian gospel, the good news that God in Christ has come to us. Here is just a sampling of those uh, from various passages. So this is Romans 5.9. We have been justified by His blood. Or Ephesians 1.7. We have redemption through His blood. Hebrews 13. He suffered in order to sanctify His people through His own blood. 1 Peter 1, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, we are forgiven because the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, it's, it's the blood that is central to it all. And God's people have a category for this because thousands of years before Jesus climbed the hill we call Golgotha and hung on that cross, there was a there was an enslaved people in Egypt, and God provided a substitute lamb so that they could be set free. And all those lambs that were sacrificed along the way are preparing the way so that when the author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, we would have a category for recognizing all that blood has been spilled for the sake of another. It's brought about forgiveness. And so how valuable, how precious is the blood of Jesus that was spilled on our behalf. There's a trail of blood in the Old Testament, and it leads us to the cross of Christ, that we would understand it rightly. And it leads us ultimately to recognize that Christ is our Passover lamb. That's the language Paul adopts in 1 Corinthians 5-7. So when we read about the Passover in the Old Testament, we have to read it through the lens of that statement that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's, this is a remarkable thing to think about. But remember, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, uh, he gathers with his disciples in, in the upper room, and, and he uh, gathers around a Passover meal, right? And Jesus was a, a Jewish man. Uh, he'd grown up in a Jewish home. He had celebrated this meal year after year after year, just like all of his forefathers would have done. He gathers in a room with 12 other Jewish men who grew up celebrating this meal year after year after year. And I'm sure they know the script. They know what each little element represents. They know what you say when you lift this cup. They know what you say when you break this bread. And then here they are in that moment, and Jesus lifts up the bread, and the disciples know the line, and Jesus changes it. He says, this is my body given for you. All this bread you've been eating all this time is to pre prepare you for this, this moment, the bread of life coming into this world to be broken for you. And then, and then he lifts the cup, and they know the line, they know what's coming, they know what it represents, and he says, this is the blood of my covenant, my blood of the covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He takes those elements that they've seen time and time again and he turns it and he applies it to himself. I, I can't imagine how radical that 
must have been in that moment. I mean, we're, we're going to take communion in a moment. Can you imagine if one of us stood up before communion and said, I want you guys to know this, this meal that we're about to take and this ritual that we do every single week it's actually about me. <laughs> this is what we've been doing all along, guys. It's, it's for me. And so you guys would know me better. You imagine how crazy that was. And yet the disciples take those very words, crazy as they sound, and what do they do? They go tell everybody. Because it's as if something clicks. It's as if all those dead lambs suddenly have a purpose. All that unleavened bread suddenly has its fulfillment, and all of a sudden we realize with the Apostle Paul, Christ is our Passover lamb. The judgment of God, the mercy of God meet at his cross. And then he turns to us, and he tells his people, now I want you, because you guys are going to be forgetful too, I want you to remember this. So I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to take communion in a moment. We do this every week. This is just a, a great reminder as to why we do it, why it's so significant. Um, people ask me sometimes, I don't know if you guys grew up in churches that took communion weekly. Most Baptist churches do not. And so uh, my Baptist friends always ask, you know, you guys do communion weekly. Doesn't it get boring? Doesn't it get routine? And these are usually pastors, and I say, well, don't you preach weekly? Do you think your people get tired of hearing from you? Um, I think that's really funny. No one else ever does, but I think it's a great joke. Um, but here's what I always tell them is, I, I just, I'll just speak for me. I don't know about the rest of you guys. Um, I do know about some of you guys, because several of you have said this very thing to me. Uh, doing this weekly actually makes it all the more significant to me. God, treasure this time. I treasure watching you guys do it. I, I treasure that every sermon ends here, right? Like we, we, can't, we can't preach a sermon from this place that, that is just you guys go do this in your own power because on your way out the door, you've got to remember that someone had to die to even get you in here. Someone had to spill his blood to even give you hope. That reminds me every week that I need him, Right? And the more we do this and the more frequently we do it, I feel like the more we understand it. So we're forgetful people. We need the reminder, right? So, so we're going to take communion. Um, the, the elements are at the, the back of the room. Uh, we've got our, our little gluten-free bread and our bowls of juice that you dip it in. And, and you're going you're gonna to walk back there. You're going to take it. You're going to take that bread and you're going to dip it in the juice. Uh, but as you're doing that, this is not just a ritual. It's not just a thing we do. It's not just a way to end a service. This is a memorial. It's a reminder. It's an opportunity to remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And lest we think that God doesn't care about things like this, we have two whole chapters in the book of Exodus that completely destroy the plot, right? They completely interrupt the story. It's getting so exciting. They're about to get out. And then God pauses and says, I want you guys to know exactly how to Remember this over and over and over and over and over. Because someday I'm going to send my son and he's going to fulfill all these promises. He's going to shatter this mold. And then he's going to give you something to do over and over and over and over because you need to be reminded. So that's, that's what we do. So uh, when we take communion, uh, it's a time for believers as an act of faith to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So uh, if you're walking with the Lord, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you're hoping in the blood of Christ, 
the forgiveness of your sins. Now, we'd invite you to take communion with us, and we welcome you at the table. Uh, if you're not sure about that, if you're just, you think about yourself, you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, I don't really know what that means, or these are things I'm still processing through, uh, you, you need to know it actually wouldn't be appropriate for you to take it. We, we'd actually encourage you to stay seated, invite you to spend this time in prayer, just kind of thinking through what these things mean, and, and just know we're, we're glad to talk to you more about it. If you'd, if you'd like somebody to help you sort through those, those questions, I'll be in the back of the room or... Other pastors are around here, and, and lots of folks in this room be happy to help you process through that. But this is a, a time to take steps forward in faith as we go to the table, and we remember what Christ did on our behalf. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time, and then uh, the band will come and play, and, and you guys can go to the table. So let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your judgment. Your judgment reminds us that you're a just God, that our world is not random, that those who do evil will see consequences. Your mercy, Lord, reminds us that all who do evil do not have to see consequences, that some can be covered in the precious blood of Christ, that he can taste our consequences for us and grant us freedom in his grace. So as we think about these people being set free years ago, and we think about this ritual that was repeated year after year for centuries, we think about this moment that we're going to experience together as a faith family. Lord, I pray that you would help it to bear the full weight of its significance in our hearts and minds this morning. Help us to remember your judgment in this moment. Help us to remember your mercy. Help us to remember Christ, our substitute, our Passover lamb, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed on our behalf. It's in his name we pray.